Welcome back to the Play On Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Stavros. Today we are speaking with Jesse Berger. Jesse is directing this season's production of Dracula. Previously at the festival, Jesse directed The Two Gentlemen of Verona in 2008. Jesse is the founding artistic director for the Off-Broadway Red Bull Theater. Productions he's directed there include Pericles, Revenger's Tragedy, Edward II, Women Beware Women, Duchess of Malfi, Witch of Edmonton, The Maids, Vopone, Loot, and Tis Pity She's a Whore. Jesse has worked at many other theaters, such as the Pittsburgh Public Theater, Denver Center Theater Company, The Old Globe, Barrington Stage, Washington Shakespeare Company, Playmakers Repertory Theater, Great Lakes Theater, Idaho Shakespeare Festival, Shakespeare Festival of St. Louis, Shakespeare Sedona, Hampton Shakespeare Festival, and the Pearl Theater Company. He's also received Obie Awards, Callaway Drama League, and the Lortel Award nominations, as well as a Helen Hayes Award. Awesome. Well, uh, Jesse, welcome to Play On Podcast. We're glad to have you with us this morning. Great to be here. Uh, so tell us, as before we start talking about uh, this adaptation of Dracula that you were directing for us, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you involve, become involved in the arts generally and in working at the festival specifically? Uh, well, I had an early uh, love of the theater, and I don't remember it sort of which came first, the chicken or the egg. But I, I was raised in Oregon. Uh, going to, we went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival um, just about every year, I think, from about age eight to eighteen, and and so I fell in love with theater there. And um, and I was kind of directing plays from fifth grade on. I took over the fifth grade classroom and stage skits and starred in them. And the scripts don't survive, but I wrote <laughs> them too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and college? Yeah, well, college, I can't... Well, so I fell in love with the theater at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and then I had a high school drama teacher who was from Utah, and he took me and uh, my closest friend uh, uh, to visit the Utah Shakespeare Festival while we were in school, and then uh, and then got, audi- got us auditions at all the schools in Utah. And so I was lucky to get an acting scholarship with my friend Russ Benton to come to Southern Utah University. And uh, so I studied uh, acting and theater here, and I, I quickly realized that what I really wanted to be was a director, and I was really lucky that the, that the faculty, uh, many of them who are still here, Fred Adams and Scott uh-huh. Phillips and uh, all my teachers and, and professors, um, allowed me to assist and direct and direct, and I got a lot of opportunities at school while I was here in Southern Utah University. So I have a, a real uh, strong connection to the, to the Cedar City um, community and to um, the school itself. Um, I'm really grateful for the training I had here, and I um, and I got to work summers at the Shakespeare Festival. So I worked in the box office. I worked as a house manager. I worked as a company manager, and I got to meet and work with all the actors and stage managers and directors. And I used to pick all their brains every summer while while I was here as a student. So there is to be back. There's really something interesting, somewhat tangential, mm-hmm. uh, about that sort of laboratory experience in the summer. I had a similar mm-hmm. experience as an undergrad, being able to watch other directors work, watch actors, mm-hmm. you know, professional actors in their craft, and sort of soaking up their styles, their habits, all good and bad, I suppose, but uh, yeah. looking at the way that they work. Uh, so at, how did that affect where you went? So did you start directing out of college? and? And what no, I really wanted to. I, I expected the professional theater world to welcome me with open <laughs> arms as a, as a director at age 21 or 22, but but uh, it didn't quite happen that way. But through connections that I made here, uh, I was uh, a couple of directors were really generous with giving me information or ideas of people to contact, and one of them was uh, Victor Pappas, who was directing here when I was here as a student. He gave me a contact at the Guthrie Theater named Garland Wright, who was at the time the artistic director there. And so I wrote a letter, and also 
also um, some of the stage managers who were working here, who I'd become friendly uh-huh. with at the time, uh, were assistant. Were working as stage managers or interns. I can't remember. I think one of them was an assistant stage manager at the Guthrie then, and so they helped me get an internship at the Guthrie Theater, and that turned out to be really um, a wonderful transformative experience, and it, it, it really built on what I'd learned at Southern Utah University and through my summers at the Shakespeare Festival, um, just as you were saying, through apprenticing, and I got mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, turned out my house management skills were useful too because I got a job, that's how I paid my bills <laughs> yeah. uh, there, but also I got to be a directing intern and a sta- and uh, and also in stage management, but uh, and... Um, and then eventually assistant directing, and really learned a lot through observing uh, the work there. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, flash forward to now. You've mm-hmm. directed in many other places. You have your own theater company, uh, directed outside in the Adam Shakespeare mm-hmm. Theater in 2008. Here we are, cooling temperatures in the fall, uh, and you're working on an adaptation of Dracula. Yeah. Talk to us about your, um, your sort of take on this script as an adaptation. Well, Stephen Dietz has done a, a wonderful adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and um, I hadn't actually read the novel. I'd seen some of the movies, and, and ironically, when Brian Vaughn called me and asked me to do Dracula here this summer, I had just seen a, a, um, a presentation of Nosferatu um, in Savannah, and it was on a big screen, and it, has, it had a uh, two-person kind of orchestra, and it was really wonderful. And a week later, Brian called and said, do you want to do Dracula? And I, I said, that's ironic. I just saw mm-hmm. Nosferatu, which I'd never seen before, and I loved it, and it was so wonderful and weird. And I had never read the novel, and so I said, sure, which version uh, Which version are you looking at, Stephen Dietz's? And, I, and he said, I looked on my bookshelf, and I had it. I'd had it for a good 10 years, and, and I don't even remember getting it, mm-hmm. I remember, but I do remember reading it. Um, so I went back and I read uh, Stephen Dietz's version of the play, which is really heart-stopping, and uh, that's not really what I mean, heart-stopping. Hmm, it's an interesting <laughs> metaphor for <laughs> yeah. Dracula. Um, Foreshadowing uh, much? Yes. Well, it really gets your pulse pumping. It's very dramatic and very uh, forward-moving and um, very passionate and really full of heightened theatrical language, which I love. And since I didn't know the novel, I went back and read the novel, and I thought, oh, he really worked directly from the novel and did a wonderful... Um, job of taking what is an uh, it's an epistolary mm-hmm. novel right it's all yep. through reportage and he did a wonderful job of taking all that reportage and putting it into dialogue and sometimes direct address the way we do in Shakespearean theater all the time um, and so it has a, a great sense of what the novel is kind of the um, the investigative, the kind of detective story aspect of the novel where the audience is putting it together as the pieces of information are coming in. And so that is really captured in the novel, or captured in the... Stephen Dietz has really captured that aspect of the novel in a theatrical fashion. Mm -hmm. It's hard to describe without seeing it, but but the scenes, a lot of the scenes are very short and they they tumble one upon another. It's almost filmic, Mm -hmm. uh, the way it's written, and it's really demanding technically because of that, because we go from a bedroom to Transylvania, to London, to here, to, uh, to Hither and everywhere yeah. the, the Stoker's novel goes. Um, and and what I like about Stephen Dietz's adaptation in that regard is that he's, he, while we need to have some representational scenery, it's Shakespearean in the way that he says, okay, now we're in London. And you just go there. And the actor says, okay, I'm in London. And you're there. And so it really uh, engages the audience's imagination in the same way that I think Shakespeare and uh, Shakespeare's contemporaries did with the outdoor theater. Awesome. Uh so you read the book, uh, and, and as you mentioned, it is epistolary. For those of you who haven't uh, read it or read that kind of book before, it's a series of letters, journal entries, diary, recordings, those kind of things. And I imagine 
I mean, you're, obviously you're not the playwright, but imagine there's some serious work that takes a book where all of the action is described in the past tense and make it into that, yeah. you know, that vibrant sort of visceral, quick-moving theatrical experience. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's one of the most exciting parts about this, certainly the script. I know Brian and David talked a lot about that when they were selecting one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He turns it very effectively into, into dialogue, and then, um, and then there's also sort of wonderful um, visual moments in the play that are, that are um, well, we'll talk more about. Okay. Great. You know, I read your director's notes, uh, and I appreciated the, the sort of the, the credit you gave Dietz in terms of the script and how little you wanted to adjust. That being said, um, as, you, as you began rehearsals and began approaching mm-hmm. the script, what was sort of your process with the actors in terms of getting this very quick-moving thing mm-hmm. on its feet and getting it going? A couple of things I would I would say in response to that. Um, I mean, one is you know the way that Stephen Dietz structured the play um, is very it's a it's a it's a beautifully constructed machine in a way. And so I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Sure. I wanted to find a way to give the wheel the best possible spin we could here at the festival. And and so you know sometimes you come across a play and and it's really a. Uh, it's got wonderful words and it's got a wonderful story, but there's not much in the way of um, how how does this work in the theater. Whereas in this in this play, it's really scripted quite uh, almost like a, it's scored almost like a musical. Mm-hmm. And and so um, so from a director standpoint, uh, I didn't want to come in and say, well, this is Jesse Berger's version of Stephen Dietz's version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Let's do Dracula. Yeah. Let's do the one that Stephen wrote. Um, based on Bram Stoker's novel as best we possibly can, and so that was my starting point. I mean, but I, as a director, I, you you bring your passions and interests and mm-hmm. personality into the room with you, and the cast that Brian and David assembled is wonderful, and they bring their passions and skills and per- peculiar personalities, um, and I'll include myself as a peculiar personality <laughs> <laughs> uh, into the room, and so we bring our own creativity to it naturally, and so it's a little hard for me to say, well, what what am I, what am I doing that uh, that is uh, that is different from someone else's version uh, of this play, um, but I think that what I bring to it is uh, is a passion for the theatricality, a passion for the language, and I try to impart that to the actors and to really uh, encourage them, which is what I did in, as we began rehearsals, to really encourage them to embrace the theatricality of it, embrace the heightened um, style of it, mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. going into the the tipping point of sure, melodrama sure and uh but taking it as it is as as yeah. a, as heightened language as this classic story told this way super passionate right. super passionate and we've continued to to uh, work on that because it's one of the exciting things about dracula is these people living in a kind of uh bronte like a passionate world and um and to deny that would be to deny, deny the fun of it to try to make it too much like contemporary everyday mm-hmm. um talk or behavior so um, a friend of mine recently uh, handed me a DVD of some Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> which I had actually never watched, and I really enjoyed it. And I thought he also captured some of that heightened in a very modern, in a yeah. more contemporary way. But um, Using but the, high school kids is a great way to do that kids. because everything in high school is the most important thing, yeah. and these problems matter. So this is similar except that it's people in their 20s yeah. and 30s and 40s. Um, so, they're, so it's a little different, and um, – the other thing I wanted to say that, uh, and I, I mean this in the best possible way, as we've worked on the play, I just I think we discovered, and I said to the actors, it's a little bit like we're doing the graphic novel version of Dracula, and in a way, when you go back and read Dracula, it's uh, it is also a little bit yeah. like what you'd imagine a, a graphic novel, and what, you know, I mean, sort of the 
the passionate intensity and the seriousness which with, with which the characters take themselves, um, but also the playfulness of, um, of the storytelling as well. Let's dive in to talk a little bit about the story. This, mm-hmm. this, the, the book Bram Stoker's Dracula, though it wasn't the first vampire novel or the first, you know, wasn't really the beginning. It is, I think, mm-hmm. arguably the most influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it for you about the story, coming to it as an adult, really, mm-hmm. uh, that captures and has continued to capture our attention as a, a society for so long? Yeah, well, it's, I'm sure there have been books written about this. Uh, for me, I think there's a couple of things, I guess. Uh, one is, you know, the character of Dracula, who's already timeless when Bram Stoker writes him. He's already been alive for centuries. So he's he's created somebody who is, um, you know, paranormal in that way mm-hmm. and that can transcend time. But uh, so, that, so that his... His out-of-timeness can work in any century, uh, including our own. But the other thing is that he, you know, he operates on our, some of our most primal fears, our fears of um, life and death and what – especially uh, before um, – modern science you know what is what is blood you know mm-hmm. what is blood what is what is the heart pumping and all you know how does the nervous system work um and uh you know so, how can i put I, i'm not sure i can put it in a in a very articulate way but i think that the dracula the character really taps into sort of primal fears of uh, life and death passion sexuality um and uh, and uh and how the chaos of those darker impulses of humanity can create havoc in our quote unquote normal lives can really disrupt a normal relationship or um yeah that well, sort of thing you know the, the, there's such a strong image a strong per, pervading image of light and darkness i mean mm-hmm. that he can only exist in the dark versus I mean, there's such symbolism there yeah. in terms of yeah. this creature who represents all of the darkness, yeah. but is still desirable and desired. And how do we yeah. reconcile all of that as both yeah. uh, characters in the show, the, the characters in the play, and then audience members? And, yeah, that's wonderful. And in, in that way, he's also Satan. You know, uh-huh. he really, you know, he's a wonder. He's a, he's a noble man, and one of the one of the characters says, uh, you know, that. Uh, the most powerful vampires are uh, can only uh, are created out of the most noble people. So he was a, a really noble, mm-hmm. just like Lucifer Fell, yeah. etc. So it taps into that as well. So he's he is he is the force of darkness, but inside it's also Darth Vader, isn't it? Yeah. Inside there is a good man that's lost, and Mina, who is the his polar opposite and his most um, uh, the one he's most seeking to. Uh, to turn into an undead vampire with him is, of course, the most pure person in the play. So, so she's and she's nearly lost. Along those lines, you think about the context in which Bram Stoker wrote this in the late mm-hmm. 1800s, Victorian England, a fairly repressed society. Yeah. Sexually, in terms of desires, its literature was its use for mm-hmm. getting the, getting those out. How does that translate for you in a moder- for a modern audience? The idea of keeping the spirit of these characters mm-hmm. as they were written, both in the book and then in the play, and still making them feel that mm-hmm. feel like they are characters who matter in their contemporary. Well, I think we're all uh, I think we're all still human beings, and we're not as different as we like to think uh, from the times that have gone before us. And though um, 
though there certainly are differences between the late 19th century and the early 21st century, I think that we're, we, we all recognize um, temptation, we all recognize um, fear, we all recognize love, and that's what these, and science, and the, the, one of the other dialectics going on in the story seems to me is about you know, trying to apply science to the supernatural or trying to understand through um, scientific means things that are unexplainable. And um, so I think we still all wrestle with these things just on a different level. I mean, I was just reading this fascinating article about two black holes, 3.5 or whatever million light years away. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that's directly related to Dracula, <laughs> but the idea of we're still trying to apply science to things that we can't possibly really comprehend. Um, and even in regards to uh, to human behavior and trying to understand the brain, uh, Dr. Seward, who's the you know runs the lunatic asylum in the play, I mean one of his great passions is to understand the brain. Well, we're still trying to understand yeah. the brain. We're still trying to understand the heart, and we're still trying to understand the unknown and the fears and the passions and the desires of of human beings. Um, so I think that uh, I think that's what makes it contemporary is is uh, tapping into the primal aspects of mm -hmm. the story and then not worrying about uh, then I and I think this is true with most of Shakespeare as well. Don't then I sort of as a director let the cards fall where they may mm -hmm. in terms of does a contemporary audience relate to this because they're wearing a you know a bustle or, or I don't think that gets in the way as long as the passions and the story is uh, are strong. Awesome, I agree. Uh, for what it matters. Um, <laughs> so I do agree. <laughs> uh, so switching gears then to the to the production itself. In your notes, one of the things that I loved that you wrote was uh, this is a play of mystery, speed, magic, and surprise. Yeah, I think I quoted. I think that's a paraphrase of Stephen Dietz. But yeah, <laughs> mystery, speed, magic, and surprise. That's right. Mystery in the story, speed in the way that it moves, the, the, the theatricality of it for us, yeah. the magic of. Yeah. Well, it is about the magic of the theater and, uh, and, and a little bit of just magic of magic. I think Dracula is, is, you know, performs yeah. some, some, uh, some tricks and there's some stage magic and there's some appearances and disappearances of, of people and things that um, we're having fun making happen in the Randall L. Jones Theater. Which goes right to the last word, which is surprise. That yeah. There's an element of that, that the two, I think, are interrelated. The magic, his magic depends on the magic of theater, which depends mm -hmm. on us seeing it for the first time as we see it. Yeah. And so we'll talk circumspectly today, I think. There's a few elements I want to talk about, but I don't. I certainly don't want to give anything away for our audience members mm -hmm. so that they can experience that mystery, magic, speed, and surprise yeah. here in, in the Randall Theater. One interesting element uh, for, of the production that I know you have kept from its original production, original productions as part of the Arizona Theater Company, mm -hmm. uh, we have with us designing the show several people who were involved in that mm -hmm. very first production. Mm -hmm. David Mickelson, our costume designer, yeah. uh, Bill Forrester, our scenic designer, and uh, the score yeah. uh, was that was originally produced there, you chose to use mm -hmm. in this production. Why, mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, well, several things. Uh, one is that we were just lucky that uh, the festival and I have a relationship with uh, David Mickelson, who's worked here for many years as a costume designer. And um, so when uh, so when, so he was attached to the project, which is terrific mm -hmm. and a great resource. And uh, and and Bill as well, who has a long relationship with the festival. So it just seemed to me, um, since we we're not attempting to reinvent Stephen Dietz's 
version of the play, of the story Dracula that we should uh, take the knowledge and resources that were available to us and then make them our own and that's really what what drove the decision to choose the score as well uh, we could have the option of creating our own from scratch mm-hmm. or but I listened to the the score samples that were available and it seemed wonderful and 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 truthfully the playwright in the notes to his script he recommends the score highly so I, I think you know if Shakespeare had said, uh, here's the score for the song <laughs> Who is Sylvia and Two Gentlemen of Verona, it's really great, you should use it, we wouldn't you, question yeah, it. We would just would use, use it. it. So, so I, I trusted Stephen Dietz, and, and I'm glad we did. But we did hire a wonderful sound designer, Brad Barrage, who is – and, and the, the um, people that we rented the score from really encouraged us to go ahead and make it our own as well. So we're doing that, and we're you know, fitting it to the timings of our oh. theater. And the stage is very different, the Randall L. Jones Theater, uh, compared to the theater where it was done in Arizona because we're in repertory. Sure. So the scenery is completely different from the original production because it has to rep in and off, uh, the, off Charlie's Aunt as well as uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I think that's a strength of, of uh, a difference of our sure. production that'll be fun because the scenery, um, if everything's working properly, which knock on wood, it should be, <laughs> it should be um, will, uh, I think, be a source of surprise. And um, we've tried to tap into some of the expressionistic roots of uh, inspiration from Nosferatu uh, and films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari uh, in the design, uh, both in terms of the lighting as the, and the scenery, and also the costumes. And, and some of the costumes are coming from the original production, but of course it's been 25 sure. years, so some of them don't exist anymore, and they're being made new for, for this production. Um, and um, there was something else I wanted to say about surprise, but I think oh I know what I know what it was. I, I just wanted to say I mean one of the things that we're we're trying to do, and I hope your audiences will come in and be the be the judge of, um, is we're just trying to stay a step ahead of the audience, we, both for audiences who know Dracula in any shape, manner, or form, uh-huh. um, and for audiences who are younger and coming in and seeing Dracula for the first time. Uh, one of my goals as a director, well my, the first rule of directing for me is you know don't be boring, but the, <laughs> but the second rule is stay ahead of the audience. Uh, just uh, play to the smartest member in the audience and, and um, so we're working hard to try to stay ahead just so that you're just like in the novel and the way that Stephen Dietz has written the adaptation the the story is just always one step ahead of you and so the, hopefully that creates a, a excitement and tension awesome you mentioned uh, sound design yeah and that we have you know using it's it's I think it's exciting to use these designers who have been here before but are creating new designs so it's not a yeah. remount in some in that way right but speaking specifically of the soundscape uh what role does the sound itself play not just the music but the sound mm. design itself play for you in keeping that magic and surprise going it's a very large role in this production we've um uh, because there's so much sound, uh, there's a lot of music, there's a lot of thunder, there's a lot of uh, wolves and uh, rat noises, and and so we've worked hard, and Brad, the designer, has worked hard to uh, with the with the wonderful technical teams here at the festival to. Um, to create a kind of surround sound experience and to really bring the audience in. Um, this isn't sound, but also involving fog and uh-huh. haze and smoke. And um, we really want the audience to feel like they're in London, they're in Transylvania, uh, they're with the characters. And, and um, if we get a few gasps along the way, that'll be great. Is there a moment in the play, a line, a moment in the play, a scene that you feel like really defines it? as a piece of literature is there a moment for you that stands out or a character even i think there are a few there are probably more than a few the ones that come to mind i think you've even quoted on your website which is the wonderful line i want your fear for your fear courses like a current through your body that's a wonderful choice um there's another line where dracula is 
waxing poetic about the past. And um, now I can't remember. I want to look at your script and, and quote it properly. But um, um, well, we'll find it and I'll read it later if it's if it's if it's as good as. But I, I, <laughs> no, it's it's good. I, I'm not sure if it, is, it encapsulates the whole of Dracula, but it's one that always catches me by surprise, and I find and I find myself moved by the idea of the timelessness of humanity and the, and not just and the timelessness uh -huh. of the story and well it'd be better if you had the actor read it. <laughs> but they can uh, come see the actor. yeah they can come see it the dracula's talking about the the i i find this moving and i suppose it's one of the things i find moving about doing uh shakespeare as well and, and older plays because it's a connection of uh, of our time to, to connecting our humanity down through the ages and this is just Dracula thinking about his past and he says um, we Carpathians have bravery and conquest in our veins it is no wonder that when the Magyar the Lombard the Avar the Turk poured his thousands upon our frontier we drove them back legion after legion they came for our land and we sentenced them to heaven instead we are a fierce people Mr. Harker with a wealth of victories like the Habsburgs and Romanovs will never know and Harker says, you speak with the passion of one who was there. Da Vinci have I known, Dracula says, Charlemagne, Bach. But great men like galaxies end as dust. We Carpathians have come to know that the early times, the warlike days are over. In our world, Mr. Harker, blood is too precious a thing to be spilt. I mean, it's wonderful language, and it's a, it's evocative to me, and it's got and it makes me giggle a little bit at the end. Of course, blood is too precious. <laughs> thing to be There's lots of wonderful lines like that, um, you know, uh, when he pours wine for Harker, and he says, "Oh, uh, I do not drink wine," you know, things like that. So, I mean, I think there's there's humor as well as um, romance and passion and suspense. Dracula's really had time over the centuries to really perfect his timing, his comedic mm -hmm. timing, and. Yeah. Delivering a great yeah. line. Yeah, and Tyler, I mean, the <laughs> cast is really wonderful. Tyler's doing a wonderful job as Dracula, and it's not easy to say a role that everyone or many, many people have mm. ideas about. Yeah, there are lots and of I, expectations for yeah. everybody coming into something like yeah. this. Yeah, and for Van Helsing, too. I mean, I, I, I think that um, the cast is really terrific, and, and they've really embraced it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So speaking again, sort of jumping back to the sort of yeah. bigger pop culture picture, uh, the only character who has been portrayed more times in literature – television film adaptations, mm -hmm. then Count Dracula is Sherlock Holmes. One of the, so they're the, they are the, the big two, which I also think is interesting because we did a Stephen Dietz adaptation of a, Shakespeare, uh, of a Sherlock Holmes play right. last year. Uh, why, and, and more ever, more in the last probably 30 years than ever. Mm. Why do you think um, our modern society is so interested in this whole vampire mythology, that's interesting. I don't, I, I don't know, uh, and I'm thinking about it in terms of Sherlock Holmes too. I mean, they're both from the same sort of period in London and Dickensian period, right? Uh -huh. So, so there is some kind of fascination with that that time of moving out of the. Um, I'm going to get my errors mixed up, but moving into the industrial era uh, and a lot of uncertainty and um, changing social mores, and um, and perhaps it's just far enough removed from our time that it feels safe to talk about these things there or to think about even Jack the Ripper, same kind of, same time uh -huh, period, right? Uh -huh. Like there's a lot of those, a lot of that, that era um, is somehow just romantically distant enough for us to be fascinated by it, to make connections with our own time and have it, I think if you were, you know, if you said it, if you said this version of Dracula, for instance, in, in Cedar City in 2000 and what year is it? 2015. <laughs> <laughs> at least for a few more months. Uh, at least for a few more months. Um, uh, 
it maybe wouldn't work as well. Yeah. But uh, but I don't know. Then there's things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and and uh, other other contemporary references. So I, I, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question. No, you yeah. well you raise an interesting yeah. point that you think about Dracula itself. Mm-hmm. I think to your point really depends on the little bit of distance chronologically mm-hmm. speaking that 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 rising out of the 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 dark time of the past into the industrial revolution the modern era science is king yeah. i think there's some real similarities between dracula and and van helsing in many ways yes. and sherlock holmes sherlock I, think, and van helsing. I mean there's the next article i think they wear the there's same the next podcast i mean they, yeah, they, yeah they wear the same coat even <laughs> <laughs> but i but more than that i think these modern adaptations don't depend on him as a character in the same way or the same kind of secrecy and ignorance that perhaps Dracula does. Mm-hmm. But there's still something in our modern zeitgeist about this, Im- these dark immortals, these yeah. people who feed on life but aren't a part of it. Yeah. There's, I mean, and to your point, it's, it can range from the comedic or ironic in Buffy the Vampire Slayer right. or Mel right. Brooks's classic adaptation, Dracula Dead and Loving It, yeah. uh, to the more serious or more... Uh, but in all dramatic. of the versions, I think it's tapping into our fear of the unknown and our and mm-hmm. particularly, uh, particularly um, well, I think just our fear of the unknown. I mean, I think you know the, all the creatures of the night that Dracula is associated with the bats, the wolves, um, the fog that can seep in anywhere. Um, it, it's interesting. There, there are things that um, science is trying to explain, and but still, even though we understand so much more about bats and fog than uh-huh. wolves, for instance, it still unsettles us. Yeah. If if you're alone on a, a, a cold night and a wolf howls nearby, I think you might still be a little unsettled by that. And I don't think it's I don't think Bram Stoker or Dracula created those fears. Those are tapping into yeah. human fears. Yeah. Your top three. Vampire adaptations, portrayals, Dracula. Knowing that you've done a little bit of research here, yeah. but whatever, sort of in your own cultural experience, what are your sort of top three vampire? I have to admit, I, um, I, I'm not. I was not really a vampire buff, but I. But um, so I, the one that I grew up with was the um, the Francis Ford Coppola version of Dracula, which I remember uh, really. Liking a lot of, and I still, and I re- went back and watched it and, and uh-huh. to see what see what I thought of it now. And a lot of it is quite wonderful. And then other parts of you think, well, uh, that's not such that's not such great um, <laughs> stuff. But but um, I but I do like that. I do like it, especially the performances of um, Anthony Hopkins and um, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman uh, are quite wonderful. And um, so that version, I would definitely add Nosferatu. I think that yeah. I mean that's the cla- that's it's so different from how how we think of Dracula now, and it's really fascinating to look at how far that myth has gone, uh, how far the image of that character has, has changed over time. Um, but I, but I, I have a, I, I've always loved the um, Fritz Lang and the German Expressionists, and so, I, so a, a, that's going to be my favorite. Um, and you have to see it. I can't do this on, on a podcast, but you have to see it. You have to uh, watch it just to see the kind of wonderful things the, car- the actor playing Dracula does with his hands. It's so creepy and strange. Uh, and, the, and the filming of that. So that one. And I am now a convert to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'll, I'll be watching a few more of those. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You talk about that Francis Ford Coppola film version. It, one, of its, one of its criticisms when it came out was that it was somewhat campy and cheesy in the mm. effects. But I don't know if you've done any – I did a bunch of research on it. They used so many practical film and theatrical effects yeah. to try to keep it sort of that yeah. old world alive. Yeah. And in some ways now I think it's going to – I hope it ages it well because yeah. 
just like what we're trying to do on stage here, mm-hmm. there's something really great about a real practical yeah. visual effect. Oh, the that visuals. You're... Yeah, the visuals in that film are wonderful. I didn't realize it had been criticized for that. I thought it was just Keanu Reeves who was no, well, getting that's, in Winona well, that's Ryder. The, that's, what, <laughs> that's what the next two criticisms. You know, Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, <laughs> you know, they were okay in it. They're not so terrible as you might remember, as you might think in your memory. But the but the visuals are wonderful yeah. and the stuff about the history of, of Dracula and the relationship between Nina that they invented for that film, really. Um is great and Renfield Tom Waits is oh, Renfield Tom, yeah, yes. is great and and that's an aspect of Stephen Dietz's adaptation that we haven't talked much about but Renfield in many ways it frames the frames the story in in this version of Dracula and Renfield is an interesting character as we got into it in rehearsal and Chris Mixon is doing a wonderful job playing the part um, as we got into it we realized well he's he he has no we call it a backstory in theater. He has no real backstory in yeah. the in the novel. It is not re- so. That's why you see so many different versions of Dracula. And Renfield always has a kind of different angle. On who was he? Was he a scientist? Was he? A, what was he before he was a madman? So you kind of get to invent that. Um, and and all well, the audiences come and, and see what we've invented. I, I something else came to mind while we were talking about. Um, different versions of Dracula, and maybe tie it back to some of your earlier questions just personally about me, um, which is I saw at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival a production of Dracula when I was probably 15, no, 14, 13. Uh-huh. I was still in grade school. And um, we had done or were about to do, which we often, we did in grade school, one-hour versions of, uh, of plays. And we did a one-hour version of Dracula and my friend Russ, who I told you about, uh-huh. uh, who went to school at Southern Utah University as well and still an actor, um, it played Dracula. And I couldn't remember what part I played, but I was Harker or Seward or one of the, uh-huh. uh, And uh, I was talking about it with my friend Russ, and I'm still in touch. And he said, all I remember is you were over the coffin with a stake, so you must have played one of those guys. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, so I, I think it was sixth grade. So this is – you can cut this out later if it's boring. But <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it was it was funny to me. Uh, and I, But I was, what I wanted to say about two one, – one, I had an early experience with Dracula yeah. as a young actor. But two, uh, that production at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival really ex- it turned me on to theater and theatrical. And I remember they did some really cool things with um, – uh, there were women dressed all painted in gray and, and gray costumes who were kind of the – I don't know who directed or designed this production, but um, who, who were kind of um, – the scenery, they seemed like they were statues, oh, wow. and, they and would... then they would come to life. And I remember being amazed by that as a young audience member. And um, so so even then, Dracula was um, was – part of my introduction to the theater and getting me excited about doing it. And so I hope that people will come to our production of Dracula, people of all ages, and get excited about the theater um, in, in general as well as Dracula in particular. Awesome. Well, last question for you. Uh, Stephen Dietz in his afterwards of the play talked about as he was adapting it, many people asked him what Dracula represented for him, what, mm. who, what, what was the symbolic creation of Dracula, whether Stoker had meant to or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he makes the statement that uh, that for all of that he could represent, for Stephen Dietz, the actual being of Dracula himself was the most terrifying aspect to him. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Or is there something else for you that Dracula represents? No, I agree. I agree. I mean, we've talked about different things like re- relative to Satan or mm-hmm. relative mm-hmm. to the, our unknown fears and all those things he taps into. But that's why, that's why Dracula is the scary and seductive creature that, that he is it is just him yeah not, yeah well jesse thank you so much for your time today we're excited to see your exciting and terrifying production of uh <laughs> steven Dietz's adaptation of bram stoker's dracula in the randall jones theater thanks very much thanks
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On Podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage, bard.org. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. Thank you.